famous French theologian, philosopher, Blaise Pascal, provided uh, history with something that is known as Pascal's Wager. Uh, in the form that it is taught and used today is somewhat different than what he wrote, but it's, it's fairly simple. If God exists and one believes in him, the reward is great. But if he does not exist, the loss is very little. If God exists and one refuses to believe in him, then the loss is very great. But if God does not exist, the gain from unbelief is very little. In other words, it is better to risk little to gain much than to risk much to gain little. Pascal was using this as a rational proof that believing is smarter than unbelieving. It is more rational to believe than to not believe because you have so much more to gain and so little to lose. But if Christianity is true and you do not believe, then you have so much to lose and so little to gain. Pascal's wager has very little evangelistic power. Pascal himself did not use it as an evangelistic tool, but rather as somewhat of a rationalistic device. I'm not sure he wasn't doing it in humor. Pascal and his other writings seem to understand the sovereignty of God in salvation. It's not up to man to rationally figure out whether it's smarter to believe or not believe. But, but it forms a, a kind of a basis that, that we deal with in our own day with the rampant unbelief and atheism that we encounter everywhere. And it, it gives us at least pause to consider not only the existence of God, but as we're looking today, the reality, the historical reality of the resurrection. And so I introduced Pascal's wager because I want to modify it in light of the resurrection. Did or did it not happen? Throughout the history of the church, there have been those who have denied that it happened because it's so irrational that a dead man should come back to life on his own power. And the deists have rejected, the liberals of the modern age have said it was a spiritual resurrection, that his name and his memory lived on in the, in the church, but that his body remained in the tomb. Well, let's look at it from Pascal's point of view. If the resurrection did not happen, have we risked little in believing that it did? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, we have committed a great crime against God and ourselves. If we believe in a resurrection that did not happen, Paul says, we have been found to be false witnesses of God if we bear testimony that he raised Christ from the dead when in fact Christ is not risen. He goes on to say, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And finally, in that same passage, he says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So we haven't risked little. We've lost a lot if, in fact, Christ is not raised from the dead. But what if Christ is raised? Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now this is not to call into question whether or not the resurrection happened. It is very hard, as with many things revolving around Jesus' life, 
to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this or that event happened. There just isn't that much data. Judea was a, a backwater province in the Roman Empire, and Jesus was a Galilean rabbi of little importance as to his pedigree, as to his family. And so there's very little written outside of our Gospels with regard to Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. We have Matthew's account, we compare it to Luke's, and we compare it to Mark's, and we compare it to John's, and we see different perspectives. Some people say we see contradictions, when in fact there are no contradictions, there are just different perspectives and views. The bottom line is that at the beginning of that first day of the week, the tomb that held our Lord Jesus Christ was empty. The attempt to convince by bribery the soldiers, the guards, to say that the disciples had come by night and stole them away while we were asleep is somewhat disingenuous because the penalty for sleeping on duty for a Roman soldier was instant death. So it wasn't a very, very good argument to use, although that was the claim. Although even unbelievers, even those who have argued against Christianity and even the resurrection, have said that the strength of a falsehood, a resurrection that had not occurred, is insufficient to have established the Christian church as it did in that day. Not one single disciple, not one apostle, many of whom, if not most, went to their deaths as martyrs. Not one of them denied the reality of the resurrection. And I think it's very important for us as Christians and in our desire to prove things, prove the existence of God, to prove the resurrection. It's important that we understand that the Apostle Paul saw no need to prove the resurrection, but rather use the resurrection as proof that God would one day judge the world as he preached to the philosophers in Athens. The resurrection, as with much of what we believe, is, to a large extent, a matter of faith. And what I hope to teach today from the Scriptures is that it lies at the very heart of our faith. One opponent of the, the rationality of the resurrection had this much honesty, at least. He said, Christianity in the form in which Paul, in which all the apostles understood it, and as it is presupposed in the confessions of all Christian churches, falls with the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, if we could somehow prove, or be proved, it be proven to us that the resurrection did not occur, then go home. Sleep in. There's nothing left for us. We are of all men most to be pitied. Easter is more important than Christmas. Throughout history, man has evidenced a belief in deity, God or gods. But the pagan concept of God is that he or they are arbitrary and angry. They constantly get up on the wrong side of Mount Olympus. And they're constantly punishing, and they're constantly warring, and constantly troubling men. And so that anger is to be appeased, and the favor of the gods is to be sought. In the midst of this pagan world, Judaism presented a completely different view. Biblical religion presents us with a God who is justly offended 
by human sin because he is a holy God in whose universe justice is essential. Abraham says to his Lord in regard to Sodom and Gomorrah, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, our God and Father, is a just God. He's not an arbitrary and angry God, but a holy God whom we have offended. These are two vastly different views and perspectives concerning the relationship of God and man, and yet they have a common denominator. The pagan religions of the world, as well as Judaism, as well as Christianity, have a common denominator, and that denominator is death. There is an understanding in human religion that the angry and arbitrary God must be appeased and manipulated through the shedding of blood, through the death of animals or even the death of humans. But that religion does nothing with regard to human sin. It doesn't even touch it. There's no room in pagan religions, nor in most other religions, even the monotheistic religion of Islam, in which our sin is dealt with. It's acknowledged and it's dealt with by God. The true religion recognizes that the problem is not with God, it's with man. God is just and holy in his response to man. And so biblical religion does not offer up blood in order to appease God or to buy his favor, but rather we have the concept of substitutionary atonement. In other words, I'm the one that should die, and mine is the blood that should be shed, for I am the sinner. But by God's grace, he has provided a substitute to atone for my sin, not to appease God, who is perfectly complacent and happy in himself, but rather to atone for my sin, to satisfy his holy justice. Perhaps the key passage with respect to biblical religion is the one we find in Leviticus 17. It's one that you should all know, verse 11, because it does, it's right at the very heart of, of Old Testament sacrifice and, and of the ministry and the death of Jesus Christ. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. In reference to this, the writer of Hebrews adds, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Ours is a bloody religion, but fortunately it's bloody in the sense of blood already shed, not in the sense of blood continually shed as it was before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. In recent times, men in the leadership of the church have sought to get rid of this bloody aspect. One locally, one that I'm aware of about 20 years ago, it was determined that hymns with reference to blood were no longer to be hung, sung in the service because they were offensive to people. They made people feel sad and, and morose rather than happy which is, of course, what we're all supposed to be, is happy all the time. But blood, 
and the shedding of blood is the very heart of, of our religion, of our forgiveness, of our atonement. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In the same place in Hebrews chapter 9, the author teaches us, teaches every soul that is sensitive to its own sin, that the shedding of the blood of a substitute is not enough. We recognize as we read through the Old Covenant and all of the sacrifices that the blood of bulls and goats that was offered on the altar was considered sufficient, but not entirely sufficient because it had to be repeated day after day, year after year. And the writer of Hebrews says that the blood and bulls of goats was not sufficient to cleanse the conscience of the sinner. The animal's dead, but the animal wasn't a sinner. I still live in my sin. God, by His grace, has transferred my sin to that animal, and yet I know that I will sin again and another animal will have to die. And rivers of blood, as Micah says, would not be sufficient to atone for my soul. The most profound perversion of the gospel and one that that is widely believed in the modern church in the West, is to teach that Jesus might not have to have died. That Jesus might not have died had Israel accepted him as their Messiah. He would have brought in the kingdom and the millennium, and he would not have died. He would have taken his throne, the throne of his father David, and one writer actually goes so far to say, God would have come up with another way to save the Gentiles. That is heresy. Jesus himself said, for this purpose I have come to this hour, to die. And any teaching that minimizes the death of Jesus Christ is one that does not understand the holiness of God or the provision of the substitutionary atonement that we need. A perfect one. One that is not just a bull or a goat without a like nature to us, but one who has our nature. As the writer of Hebrews said, one who is tempted such as we are, yet without sin. One who has partaken in flesh and blood. Or as Paul says in Romans 8, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so we... Teach Jesus as our sacrifice, as our atonement. But what if that were it? The bulls and the goats that were sacrificed on the altar did not rise again. They were dead. Where would we be if Jesus had died on the cross and that was the end of the story? As I said, Easter is more important than Christmas. And I would say that the empty tomb is more important than the cross. Now, don't get me wrong. There's no Easter without Christmas. There's no atonement without an incarnation. And certainly there's no empty tomb without a cross. But the incarnation is not only incomplete without the death of Christ. It, it is a failure. It is not that for which God intended. He sent his son into the world to die. 
And Jesus' death on the cross is not only incomplete without the empty tomb, without the resurrection, it is a failure. It is the triumph of darkness over light. It's the triumph of death over life, of sin over righteousness. What if Jesus had not been raised from the dead? He would be nothing more than another martyred prophet, joining a long and illustrious list, but dead nonetheless. And that is why the testimony of the apostles in the New Testament emphasize Christ's death more than his birth, and certainly his resurrection more than his death. We should think God's thoughts after him as he has revealed his completed work in Jesus Christ. We read far more in the epistles of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection and the meaning of the resurrection and our likeness in Christ in the resurrection than we do of Christ's death. And we read more of Christ's death than we do of his birth. Because for us, that empty tomb means everything. And if it weren't for that empty tomb, then everything we teach means nothing. The most profound statement that we can find in scriptures is the one I read earlier from Romans 8. Paul says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. The mystery and the majesty of our justification, of our sanctification, of our glorification are hidden in that last phrase. He condemned sin in the flesh. With respect to our passage in Matthew chapter 28, it was and is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by that I mean the literal, bodily, physical resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ that announced to the universe the condemnation of sin in the flesh. We read a lot in Paul's letters especially about the sin that dwells in our members. That is the context of Romans chapter 8. He's coming off of Romans chapter 7. He has just said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Earlier he said, there's no good thing that dwells in me that is in my flesh. I see a law at work in the members of my body, in my flesh, that wars against the law of my mind that delights in the law of God. Sin adheres to our flesh, inherited as it is from our father Adam. Even after we are born again, we still are in the flesh. Our physical bodies, our souls in need of sanctification constitute that flesh in which the principle of sin still works. And there are times for each one of us where we echo Paul's cry, wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? How was it done? Well, many people believe that Christianity 
is God showing us a way that we can be good. God showing us a way and giving us the ability to do what he wants us to do. That's Christianity. It's a new moral code. It's like a new law, a law of grace instead of a law of prohibitions, of commandments. And much of Christian preaching is just that. This is what you do now. This is what you don't do. This is how you be a Christian and go to heaven when you die. That's not it at all. The essence of Christianity is that verse, that phrase in Romans 8, verse 3. He condemned sin in the flesh. And therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because even the sin that dwells in our flesh is condemned already. And we are not. But had Christ remained in the grave, sin would have remained triumphant. For the wages of sin is death. Had death triumphed over the Lord of glory, then death would have won and sin with it. And that is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are still in our sins. Our faith is worthless. We remain in our sins. When death grasped hold of Jesus Christ, its power was forever broken. That is the victory, Christus Victor, that we read in the Gospels. When death grabbed a hold of Jesus, when he laid down his life, submitting himself to physical death, Death committed suicide. Death lost its power forever. This was foreshadowed, as we've already read, through the open tombs when Christ died. It was confirmed the morning of the first day. Enough cannot be said about the resurrection. It needs to return to its rightful place as the center pillar of the Christian faith the empty tomb, without which nothing. And it will culminate at the end of the age with the resurrection of life. Death still casts a long shadow. You think about it. As a Christian, should you have any fears of death? Should it bother me, for example, to go up a ladder? You know, you know what it said, I don't fear the fall, I fear the sudden stop at the end. You know, why does my body respond with irrational paralysis when I'm more than 15 feet above the ground? Why do we, many of us, when we fly, pray <laughs> that this big tube would stay in the air until it's supposed to come down in the right place? There should be no fear of death. Death does still cast a long shadow. Why do we fear when we, we go to the doctor for a physical? What, what are we going to hear? You know, that little twinge that I've been feeling. What is that? And then we're so relieved when we find out that it's not cancer. It's not a tumor. Death casts a long shadow. Even regenerate man cannot, cannot but hate death. Death is unnatural. Death is not part of the created order. We were created to live. And so we resist and we recoil from death. 
But why do we fear it? Well, it seems to me that the more we understand the significance of the resurrection, or as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, the power of Christ's resurrection, the less we will fear death. For us in Christ to die is to sleep. And our souls are to be immediately in the presence of our Lord. And we have the assurance through the empty tomb that our bodies will not remain in the tomb, but will one day be raised as Christ has been raised, incorruptible. And we will forever be with the Lord in our bodies, as Job recognized so many thousand years before Christ. In my flesh I will stand in the last day, and I will worship my Maker. Maybe it is a better wager to be a Christian than not to be. But such a religion has no real power. It has no truth. It's a religion of the mind. I've convinced myself that it's a, a better bet to be a Christian. Because you know what? If it's all false, then what's the big deal? We die and that's the end. But if it's true, you know, I better have some fire insurance and protect myself. And maybe it's a better wager. But it's a powerless religion. Sterile. Rather contemplate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb, that sin and death had no power over him, and now no power over those who are in him. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you might, by your Spirit, place that empty tomb in front of our minds that we might not lose sight of it. Father, we, we see another professedly Christian religion constantly looking upon a cross with Jesus still upon it. It would be better if we hung empty tombs, rocks rolled away from the entrance, and nobody inside. For our Lord is risen. And he sits at your right hand, and we in him are risen. And death and sin no longer have mastery over us. We have been set free by his death and by his resurrection. And so I pray, Father, that in my heart and in all of our hearts, the resurrection might be powerful, might guide our thoughts throughout every day, and that through this, Father, we might not fear death. Hate it, yes, but fear it, no. For your glory, and for the glory and the majesty of the work that you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ, whom death could not hold, but had to release him, and in releasing him lost its grip on us. We praise you, Father, for this magnificent work of salvation we ask, Father, that we might live in it and in its power, as Paul says, that we might know Christ and the power of his resurrection, we ask in his name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction this morning from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, and I would add that the resurrection of Jesus Christ matches every one of those phrases, let your mind dwell on these things. Amen.